morning, and uh, welcome to River Glen. Good to see you. Good to be together with you. How's everybody doing? How you feeling today? Hot enough for you? Another cooker today. We're, we're grateful for it, though. And I'm so glad you're here. We've got a guest speaker uh, with us, my friend, Tim Harlow. Somebody asked me, how'd you become friends? How'd you get to know Tim? But 10 years ago, Tim invited maybe seven or eight pastors from churches our size or from around the country, and I was included in that, to come down to Parkview Christian Church where he uh, serves as a pastor at South Suburb of Chicago. And we just spent a few days just hanging around Tim, hanging out with him. He, he taught us, he encouraged us, he uh, mentored us, took us for some Chicago pizza. That was really good, that was a lot of fun. But that's just the kind of guy Tim is, very generous with his time and very willing uh, to help. And I'm so grateful that he uh, was generous enough to come up and, and share with us this weekend. Tim's in demand. Um, he's not just one of the leading pastors in the Chicago area. Uh, he's one of the leading pastors in the country. Uh, Story of Parkview is just amazing. Uh, yeah. And uh, in, in 1989, Tim went to Parkview, Parkview Christian Church, about 150 people. At that point, got him on mission with Jesus. And today, over 8,000 people uh, gather every weekend at uh, Parkview Church in three locations. They're a multi-site church. Tim's written a couple books. We're, we're doing a study of uh, Life on Mission, his book. Great book. There's the uh, hardcover uh, version. And I highly recommend this to you. It is an excellent book that I think would be really helpful to you. And then there's also a paperback study guide. If you're in a small group, uh, you're going to want one of these. You're going to be using one of these. It's an excellent uh, tool. If you're not in a small group, it's not too late. Stop at the uh, Connect Wall, and they'll help you find one. And uh, there's also some additional study notes in here and room for journaling that would be just helpful for uh, anybody. And Tim will be available after the service in the lobby. Uh, by the uh, main entrance, and so, you know, he'd be glad if you want to stop by, he'd be glad to sign your book or just say hello to him. So would you join me? Let's give a big warm welcome to Tim Harlow. Thanks so much, Tim. Just relax, everybody. I'm not a Bears fan. Just relax. I mean, is anybody really a Bears fan right now? I mean, come on. Um, just, just, you know, I, I moved to Chicago 28 years ago and I, I adopted some of the customs and habits and uh, a couple of the, you know, phraseologies, but I grew up in Oklahoma, so you'll hear a little Oklahoma along the way as well. Uh, Boomer Sooner, how about that? Yeah, let's talk about, let's talk about football, college football. I, I'm glad to be here. Um, the reason I wrote this book and the reason I got this thing going is because it, you guys get it. And our church gets it, but most of the churches in the country, they don't get it. And the truth of the matter is the fastest growing religious group in the country right now are the nuns, not like the Catholic sisters. I mean, N-O-N-E-S. They believe in none. No religious worldview whatsoever. The people that have no religious worldview whatsoever have grown from 15% in the 50s to 60% in 2010. Fastest growing religious group in the, in, in the country are the people who said, you know what, I don't believe in anything anymore. I'm sick of it. This sums it up, this video. Um, I'm, I'm going to play this video. It's really just an audio, um, but it's a guy from Texas, so you've got to have closed captioning so that you can understand it, Okay. <laughs> And, uh, and he witnesses a wreck between four old ladies in, a, in an Impala and another guy. And we'll just listen. It'll, it'll explain itself. Hey, Mark. Excuse me. I'm on my way to 3768. Kind of got hung up. It's raining out here. I'm on my way into Dallas. Uh, thought, whoa, whoa. Man, I just had a wreck right in front of me. This guy ran a red light and hit uh, 
hit four old ladies in a in an Impala, just kind of clipped them and turned them around right in front of me. Man, that was close. Oh, now this guy's getting out of his car. He's got a he's got a white shirt on with a tie and a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. He's throwing his hands up in the air like he like like it was their fault. Oh, hold on, hold on. He's going over their window. Oh man, she, I think she sprayed him with pepper spray, man. He's holding his he's holding his face and he's on his knees. She's getting out. She's beating him with an umbrella. <laughs> the other women are getting out too. <laughs> ah, there's one woman with a little black person. She's tomahawking him, man. She looks she looks like a Sunbelt 20, 20 horsepower jackhammer. Blah, blah, blah. She, we got another woman that's. <laughs> she's hitting him like like he's got a cattle prod, man. She's got a she's got an umbrella and she's sticking it in his side. Oh, there's another one that it's a little woman who looks like Mother Goose. <laughs> she's got Oh, she beating him! She beating him, she's got this huge big bag. It's huge, it's about the size of her, she's about four foot nothing. She hit him over the head, everything went all over the place. Her Bible fell. Oh, she just hit him in there with a Bible. <laughs> she picked this Bible up and she lifted it way over her head. It was it was a hardback NVI version. <laughs> she picked this Bible up and raised it up above her head and just beamed the guy. This guy's not getting up. Let me uh, let me just ask you. Not, yeah, I don't know. I don't know who you're clapping for, Mother Goose or what? I don't even know. Let me. But look, look, this is this symbolic of the problem that I wrote the book to address. Okay, how many of you have been at least symbolically beaten over the head with the Bible by somebody in your life? Raise your hand unless you're sitting next to her. Okay. You see what I'm saying? I mean, and that's the culture that, that I grew up in as well. If you ask the average person in the world, what does a Christian look like? They're going to say judgmental. They're going to say Bible thumper. They're going to say beat you over the head with it like that. And I know that was symbolic, but it's the same idea. It was the climate of the church that I was raised in. My dad was a pastor. I was raised in the church, but I kept seeing this, the climate just keep getting colder and colder for the church versus the world. And it became more and more for us about staying away from the world instead of being in the world where it looked like Jesus had left us to do our, our work. It was confusing to me. We started our own radio stations. We started our own schools. We started, people started going around when I was in, in college, people started going around um, telling us that we should only listen to Christian music, okay? And you got to understand, I mean, Late 70s, early 80s, man, Christian music was bad. It was really, really bad. And they would tell us, not only should you burn your non-Christian records, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm showing my age. Um, a record is like a, it's a vinyl <laughs> disc, okay? I don't know if you've seen them before, but that's how we used to listen to our music before 8-tracks, okay? So, so they would tell us, and, and it was cool when you burn them, because they would, anybody do one, you shrivel them all, they, 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 you know, you can make like a little ashtray out of one if you wanted to, but they would tell us that we needed to burn them, and now here was the problem, not just because the message on the music, the non-Christian music was bad for you, forwards, anybody know this, right? But they were telling us that somehow, if you played the record backwards, it had a message from Satan embedded into it. 
which only made a guy like me go, how do you play a record backwards? I didn't even know you could do that. How, how do I do that? My Sears turntable didn't do that. And I prayed about it for a while, and I thought, uh, okay, I get what they're saying. I know some of these lyrics aren't, aren't great. But I'm going to tell you, when they got to the Eagles Hotel California album, I put my foot down. <laughs> That's the best rock guitar duet in history. Can I get an amen? I mean, you, you can say amen about that. I'm like, wait a minute, I, I, there, there, there is something going on here that's not right. And, and listen, I'm not saying that Christian stuff is wrong. There's a lot of Christian music that ministers to me. I'm glad you got Matthew West coming soon. I mean, this is going to be, there, it's way, way different than it was back in the day. And I am a pastor, in case you missed that. So church groups are important, and Christian friends are important. And all three of my daughters ended up at Christian colleges, okay? What I'm saying is that removing ourselves from the world was never the goal. It's the opposite of the goal, okay? And Amish have not got this figured out. I'm sorry if that offends you, but you know they're not watching me on the internet anyway, so it doesn't matter, okay? <laughs> Removing ourselves from the world was never the goal. It's the opposite of the goal, because Jesus said, go into the world and preach the gospel to all creation. That's what he said, right? The goal was to be witnesses. He said, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the othermost parts of the world. Jerusalem was where they lived. Judea and Samaria was the area around them, and the othermost parts of the world speak for themselves, right? Did you know that our Jerusalem, if you live in the United States of America, is now the third or fourth largest mission field in the world. There are 195 million unchurched Americans that live around us. We're now the third or fourth largest mission field. You're like, whoa, whoa, I thought we were the ones that sent missionaries every place. No, missionaries are being sent to us by other countries. How did that happen? That happened while I was on watch, okay? And, and look, you may be here today, and you might be not sure, you know, if you're a believer or not, you're not sure about this Jesus thing. I'm going to guess, and, and welcome, you're welcome here, you found the right place. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to suggest to you that you, uh, you probably don't have Jesus in your life if you've heard about him, but you didn't like the idea. It's probably because no one really represented Jesus very well to you yet. If the only Christians that you ever met were the people who were beating you over the head with it, then why would you want Jesus? And hey, for everybody, just a theological note, the only people that Jesus ever beat over the head with the Bible were the people who were beating other people over the head with the Bible. Those are the only people that Jesus ever got mad at, that he ever, that he ever, that he ever used Scripture against, that he ever got angry with, was the Pharisees. That was it, okay? So here's what we have to do as a church. And I, I mean overall, I promise you River Glen gets this. Our a lot of churches get this. But overall, as American Christians, here's what we have to do. We have to ask ourselves two questions. Peter Drucker, father of American management, said this. Every day, doesn't matter what you do, ask yourself two questions. What business are we in and how's business? That, that's all we need to know, Okay. I mean, how, what business are we in and how's business? It's very, very simple. And if you know what business you're in, you measure how well you're doing business. The problem is a lot of people don't know what business they're in anymore. A lot of people haven't ad adapted along the way. We hear about businesses every day that are going under because they forgot what business they were in. 
Now, Toys R Us, you know, they, 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 they're in the toy selling business. They just didn't know that people were going to order all of them online, and they didn't make that transition. They kept thinking everybody was going to come to a store, right? What business are you in, and how's business? So as, as I've been doing this around the country and talking to people, I've been correct, collecting uh, pictures that just kind of sum up the whole idea of you really don't know what your business is. We, we called it, you had one job, and there's tons of them on the internet. Here are some of my favorites that people have sent me. You had one job. It's a boy. Nah. You had one job. Notice where the, you see what's wrong with it? Where's the milk? You, you had one job. I, I won't say what state this is in. <laughs> Kentucky, I'm pretty sure. Um, you, you, you had one job. Put, put the toilet paper where I can reach it while I'm still sitting on the toilet. You had one job. I don't even know what to do with this, guys. How does that work? How does that work? I don't even get it, okay? Oh, wait, I'm, I'll, give, I'll give you my all-time favorite, okay? Guy goes into Starbucks, orders his frappolade thing, and, uh, and the barista says, okay, sir, give me your name. He says, Mark with the C. <laughs> Kark, Kark, we got your latte, Okay. You see what I'm saying? We have to figure out what our mission is, what our job is, and it's easy for churches to fall into this same category of just doing the same thing over and over and over again. If you want to know the truth, the question is this. What business are we in? Why am I alive? That's the question. Why am I alive? And the answer is to share the good news. Now, before you freak out, I'm going to explain all this, and I promise you, it's going to put your mind at ease. But let me, let me say it this way. Rick Warren, uh, author of The Purpose Driven Life, said, there are two things on earth that you can't do in heaven. Think about it. Heaven's going to be wonderful, and, and we're going to have relationships in heaven. There's going to be all kinds of things in heaven that we have on earth. But there will definitely be two things that we can't do in heaven that we can do on earth. One of them is sin, and the other is tell people about Jesus. To which he says, which one do you think he left us here to do? The religious people in Jesus' day had the same problem. They didn't understand. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Is that, is that true? Did Jesus hang out with sinners and eat with them? Yes, he did. And he got in trouble for it. But how else could he fulfill his mission, ladies and gentlemen? To quote the famous theologian Miranda Lambert, <laughs> I heard Jesus, he drank wine, and I bet we'd get along just fine. He could calm a storm and heal the blind, and I bet he'd understand a heart like mine. It's really a haunting song to me. When you think about who Jesus was and who Jesus would be if he was here and who Jesus would hang out with, and what we've made the church to be, there's a big disconnect. I'm going to take you to Matthew 9. Um, 
we're going to talk about Matthew the tax collector. Backstory, Jesus and the gang are uh, they're, they're walking along the road one day, and, and it's just this random system back then where you could set up a, a booth or like a, 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 a gate along a bridge or some road where people had to pass through you, and you could collect taxes there if you were in with the Roman government, all right? So picture Monty Python and the Holy Grail if you're old enough, right? Answer me these questions three. That's what Matthew, he's sitting in a booth and he's sitting there going, okay, I'm collecting taxes from everybody. Now, to understand who Matthew is, he's a Jew who has sold out to the government to make money, right? He, he, he is, uh, I mean, he's the... He's a drug pusher in, in the ghetto. He, he is like the, the, the people that are trying to live their life and do the things that they want to do, and somebody's taking advantage of the system, all right? That's who he is. And, and nobody who was a real Jew ever wanted to have anything to do with a tax collector. Uh, they, they had their own category. You ever think about that? The Bible always talks about the sinners and the tax collectors, right? They had their own category. Which is fascinating because I, I want to introduce a concept to you that I think you'll, you'll understand. It's called gracism. Gracism is what happens to a lot of us along the way. There are sinners and then there are tax collectors. There are sinners and then there are those people that we think do a, a worse sin than we do. And so they're lower down on the list. This is important. Gracism is not about the color of your skin. You know what a, a big problem we're having still in our country with racism? It's, this is not about the color of your skin. This is about the color of your sin. Are you with me? So these people come along and they immediately, these are the disciples, okay? They're, they immediately see a tax collector and they think, this guy is the lowest in the category. Here's another story about tax collectors before I jump in. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Again, you've got to tell exactly who they are. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. This is a great prayer, isn't it? I thank you that I'm not like other men, like those robbers, those evildoers, the adulterers, or even like this tax collector. You just imagine him pointing to this poor other guy who's there trying to pray. Look at me. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. I, I, I follow all the laws. You should like me, God. Okay? That's what gracism does. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up into heaven but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, that's how any tax collector must have felt about their relationship with God. That's how most other people felt about tax collectors. Well, at least I'm not a tax collector. You fill in the blank with whatever you want to, but we all have them. Here's what I want to tell you about your neighbors and your coworkers and the people that live around you. Most of them, in their honest moments, don't lie awake at night and think, I'm so awesome. <laughs> Do they? They don't. In their honest moments, they may, may, may come off that way. They may seem cocky, but in their honest moments, they, they're going to go, man, I'm a mess, and I'm messed up, and I don't know how you could possibly ever love me. Here's what you need to know. The farther, I, and I, this is my conjecture, but I believe it's true. The farther a person is from God, the more they realize they need him. Remember, it said the tax collector stood at a distance. Why would he do that? Why would he stand at a distance and beat his breast and say, I'm not worthy to be here? Well, for one thing, he knew he wasn't worthy. And for another thing, he was not even allowed in the synagogue. 
Because he was a sinning tax collector, he was not even allowed in to be close to the Father who loved him. That's the background of what's going on when Jesus and the disciples come in to Matthew 9.9, and there at the tax booth is, is Matthew, the tax collector. Everybody's thinking the same thing. This guy is scum. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting in a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he said. And Matthew got up and followed him. Not very much information. That's all we got. So just imagine with me, okay? Imagine with me that you are the disciples and you see this lousy jerk of a guy, this low on the totem pole kind of guy. He's a sellout. He's a crook. He can't go to the synagogue. He, 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 he doesn't deserve to be with God. You hate him. You probably think when, when you come up to this booth and you're supposed, Jesus is supposed to give his money to this guy as he goes through this tax booth, you're probably thinking, hit him over the head with your Bible, Jesus. Let him have it. And instead, what does Jesus say? Follow me. He says, follow me. He says, follow me to a guy who's not even allowed in the synagogue. He says, follow me to the guy who's beating his breast and saying, I'm a scumbag. I don't deserve to be with you. It's the last two words you would expect Jesus to say. You repent sinner. That, that, those are the words that you want. Shame, shame. Those are two words you want to hear him say, but follow me. No, no, no. And then it blows it all up when immediately in your mind, you go, wait a minute. Follow me means hang out with us. We don't want this, this tax collector guy with his backward masking Hotels California music following along with us. It's going to ruin our reputation. I mean, there's no, there's no record of this happening in the Bible, but you can't imagine. They were too excited about having this sellout guy, this crooked, terrible tax collector, be one of them. It would have brought them lower down on the scale. Remember, most of these guys are fishermen. That's the beautiful thing about this. On the list of gracism, those who deserve to be with God, even fishermen are above tax collectors. Everyone has somebody that we can look down on and think better about ourselves because at least I'm not like that guy. I'll give you the list in case you're wondering. Okay? You had, in in their day, I believe this would have been the list. The Pharisees, they know all the law and all that stuff. Yet the teachers of the law, they're right there with them. You got the doctors and the nurses that, that help people. Obviously, that's it. You got normal people, you know, who's whoever they are. Probably next would be fishermen because they stink all the time and they're unclean. And so they're, they're on down the list. The, then you have sinners in, you know, just kind of the broad category. And you have prostitutes because those were always called out in a different category. And then you have tax collectors. That's the list. And then there's one more. It's uh, Cub fans. Okay, that's all I'm saying. Right? <laughs> there, that's that, that. That's my list. I don't know how your list goes. Okay. So, so that's what happens. And see, even if you're a fisherman, you can look down on all those other people and think, "Wow, that's so great." Can you imagine the day when Jesus called Luke the doctor to be one of the disciples? They're like, "All right." Moving on up. This is good. We're, we, we got a doctor with us now. This is awesome, right? I was, I was with Pastor Rick Warren out in California. We're planning. We do, we do a lot of work in Africa like you guys do. We actually do work in the same uh, parts of Kenya. 
Um, we, we were talking about how to get more pastors over to Africa and help them to see what was going on. And Rick Warren is connected to everybody. And we're sitting there talking about this stuff. And, and all of a sudden, Rick goes, oh, I forgot. I got a text from Bono the other day. Maybe I'll invite Bono to come to the African Congress. For those of you who don't know, Bono is the biggest rock star on the planet. He's the lead singer for U2. I turned and looked at Rick. I said, if you can get Bono there, every pastor in America will be there. Are you kidding me? Everybody wants to get a picture. To Everybody wants a selfie with Bono. Am I right? I'm showing up. I mean, yes, Jesus, invite Dr. Luke to be with us. That's awesome. He can sit by me. But not Matthew. He's a tax collector. And nobody wants a selfie with the tax collector. Except for Jesus. This is so important. That's all the information we have. Next verse, you know. I wish there was more. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. That's all we know. What happened? My guess is Matthew said, hey, Jesus, I'll follow you. And Jesus said, good, let's go eat. I'm hungry. And Matthew said, why don't you come over to my house? We have plenty of money. I got steaks in the fridge. I, I rip people off for a living. I got everything that you need, right? And come on over to my house. And Jesus said, cool, let's go. And Jesus went over to his house. And on the way, Matthew said, hey, do you mind if I, if I ring some of my friends? I'd love for my friends to come over and meet you. And Jesus said, cool, that's why I'm here. It was the greatest day of Matthew's life. He's on the phone. He's texting his buddies. Hey, come over. Jesus is coming to my house. Can you imagine? I mean, Jesus was a rock star by this time. Everybody knew what he was doing. But who do you think Matthew invited over? <laughs> who were his friends? Other sinners. Other tax collectors. Right? I mean, he, he didn't have doctor friends. He didn't have other kinds of friends because he'd been cast out. So basically what we know in these two verses is that Jesus has showed up at a sinner party. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine the sinner party? Can you imagine the conversations that are going on? They'd heard about Jesus. They were wondering why he was there. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing Matthew, you know, running back and forth, back and forth to the kitchen. He's restocking the beer cooler. You know he is. He, he, he's going back and forth. He, he had non-Christian music playing on the stereo, and he had a good stereo because he was rich. I mean, he had a kicking subwoofer, and it's just thumping in the background. And he doesn't know. He hasn't heard of Mercy Me yet. He doesn't know there are Christian radio stations. The music's in the background. Baby, you a song. Make me want to roll my windows. I, I think he was into country music. And the Bible says, the Bible says, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. What is going on? Many tax collectors and sinners? This is the Bible's way of saying Jesus was at a naughty people's party. Can you imagine? And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked, why is your teacher at a naughty people's party? Basically, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? There's that delineation again. It just kills me. It's so obviously morally offensive, Jesus. We don't even need to give you a reason. Why are you doing this? And Jesus responds to what they say. And one of, I think, his most important statements in the Bible. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. 
Then he throws a little dig at them, and he says, why don't you go and learn what this means? Which is funny, because they're Pharisees, and they think they know everything, right? Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I have not come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners. Now, that's a prophecy from Hosea and Micah in the Old Testament. And they know this. They just didn't really believe it. In other words, what Jesus is saying there is, hey, all you religious people, up front here, I need you to understand that the kingdom of God is not about a bunch of religious people hanging out in their little box, burning their devil music. I'm here for the sinners. And the church needs to be here for the sinners. And if you think you can take care of yourself and you think you're righteous enough and everything else is going great for you, then you don't need any medicine. But people who are sick need a doctor, and I'm the doctor. And that medicine I have is called grace. Quit hogging it. Mike Iaconelli said, Until Jesus came along, we were all outside the fence of God's grace. But Jesus did more than move the fence. He tore it down. No wonder he made the scribes and the Pharisees nervous. Fence makers do not like their fences to be torn down. So what did Jesus do? He spent most of his time with people who were the farthest away from God. In Luke 14, Jesus said, A certain man was preparing a great banquet. He invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. So the servant came back and reported this to the master. And the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant answered, What you've done, what you've ordered has been done, but there's still room at the banquet table. So the master told his servant, Go out into the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in because I want my house to be full. Those people who think they're healthy, they're going to miss out. But the sick, the people that are farther out, that don't realize what this is all about, they're hungry for God. They need the grace to get in. And there's a spot at the table. And our job as believers is as soon as we find out there's a banquet table and we've got a spot at it, we need to save the next seat for our friend, for our relatives, for our neighbors that don't have a seat at the table yet. That's our responsibility That's our privilege. And it's a problem for me, if I'm honest about it. I work at a church. Most of the people I I eat with and and, and I I serve with and I hang out with, most of the parties are full of Christians. John Stott, theologian John Stott, calls this rabbit hole Christianity. You know, we get to this point where we just pop up out of our little Christian rabbit hole and we run over somewhere else and we pop back into another Christian rabbit hole. One Christian event to the other. But if I'm going to look like Jesus, if he's my master and I'm his disciple, what should I be doing? Who should I be eating with? The stats are that by the time a person has been a believer for seven years, they literally have no non-Christian friends. Because we start doing church things together and we get in small groups and all those are incredibly important. And we, but we start huddling up together and getting in Christian rabbit holes and all of a sudden we don't even know anybody out there. That's why I, and you probably as well, have to be purposeful about having relationships with people who don't have Jesus. 
One of those things for me is a health club I've been a member of for 20 years. And honestly, I get a better workout in my basement because as soon as I walk in, there's all these people there that know me and know who I am and, and want to talk. And I, you know, I'm doing more counseling. Obviously, I do more counseling than I do working out when I'm there. But it gives me an opportunity. It gives me an opportunity to go be around those people. If you're doing the DVD curriculum, and I want to really invite you to, to join in with us on this. This is only really, this is the beginning of the five steps today. There was a preview week, and then the five steps are going to start today. Get the DVD stuff. We'll send it to you. We'll get you a copy and, and do this with your group. In week two, you're going to meet Mike. He's my ex-Hells Angels biker friend that I met at the health club. And um, we met one day like this, okay, just in case you're wondering, like, how do I meet non-Christians? It was like this. I was walking in between a couple of pieces of equipment, and I saw him, and I said, you might want to write this down. Hey, man, how you doing? That was it. I didn't know who he was. I didn't know he knew who I was, although he did. I said, hey, man, how you doing? Really, all I was like, I was just saying, dear sir, if I'm in your way, please don't kill me. You can have this machine, you know? He's a big, rough-looking, scary-looking dude. And he said, I'm not doing so good. And we hit, we hit up a friendship, and I gave him my cell number. And i got to tell you, my, uh, my cell phone has never known so many interesting words as the day I gave it to Mike. You're going to meet him on this video. came to Christ along the way. But I'm going to tell you, man, early on in the relationship, one of the hardest days for me is I showed up to work out. Mike's in the locker room. And Mike, it, it foul, he was foul-mouthed. Um, gawked at every woman in the place, just, you know, one of those guys, okay? That's what he knew. He showed up one day to work out in a strip club t-shirt. I mean, a bad strip club t-shirt. I don't know if there are good strip club t-shirts, but it was definitely a bad one. And, and I'm like, dude, you can't work. You, half these people go to my church and everybody knows who I am. You can't work out with me with that strip club t-shirt on. Turn it inside out. Go find another shirt. No, wouldn't do it. Wouldn't do it. Wouldn't do it. He was kind of testing me, I think. So I had a decision to make. What am I going to do? Am I going to go out there and work out? Or am I going to hide? Do you know how I felt? I felt like Jesus. I really did. I mean, not at first. I was embarrassed and, you know, concerned for my reputation. And I'll admit that you know, whenever I was around him, I was kind of like trying to make sure no, as few people could see him as possible, you know, trying to block the view because it was, it was bad. It was offensive. I have three daughters. I, it, I didn't like it. But if I'm supposed to be a disciple of Jesus, I need to look like Jesus. And that's probably going to put me in some uncomfortable situations with non-Christians. Matter of fact, it's probably a good sign that I'm more like Jesus, if the gracest people, if the gracest are talking bad about me. Because it's messy. It's really messy. And I think the biggest reason that most churches and most believers shy away from it, if the sinners and the tax collectors, is because they are scary and they are messy. I love it, but it's scary and it's messy. I'll tell you one funny story. I had a guy, was a biker dude, 
um, came to me one day because I said something about what would Jesus do, you know, the WWJD thing, and I kind of made fun of it, I guess, a little bit. But he said, oh, I got a great story about WWJD. He said, when, when, I was, uh, when that first came out, I wasn't a Christian. And, and people were wearing WWJD on their, on, their, on their vests and stuff. I thought, well, that's cool. I don't know what it means, but I'm going to get one. So he literally did. He was walking around with WWJD. And he said people would come up to me and go, hey, WWJD. And be like, yeah, me too. And he just kind of go on. I, and, you know, and finally somebody goes, hey, what, WWJD. And he goes, yeah, uh, what does it mean? <laughs> and the Christian biker goes, it was, it's, what would Jesus do? And Franco said, ah. Oh. I thought it was, we want Jack Daniels. <laughs> be whatever you want it to be, I guess, right? Listen, I hold it as a badge of honor that my relationship with people like those guys blows up my cell phone, that it, that it, that it blows up. I mean, we, we've, we've got a guy that we baptized last year that, that literally was told by his church, we, we'd, like, we'd be more comfortable if you didn't come back here. And I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't in a moral failure. It was, it was just who he was. They just weren't comfortable. He'd been kicked out of churches, and we baptized him. That's what the church is supposed to be about, because Jesus came for the sick. So churches are supposed to look more like hospitals than they're supposed to look like country clubs. C.T. Studd said this. He said, some wish to live within the sound of the chapel bell, but I want to run a mission a yard from the gates of hell. So what's our business? We're in the witness business. How's business? Well, let's do a little exercise. Pull this out of your bulletin. You got this who's in your hood thing. It's also known as the sheet of shame. This really, really simple exercise. There's your house. Who are the people that live behind you, in front of you, on catty corners, and on the side? Do you even know them? That's why we call it the sheet of shame. Do you even know their names? Have you ever had a, a conversation as deep as, hey man, how you doing? With the nine people, the eight people that are around you, have you ever even done that? And, and if you're, you know, in a Christian convent somewhere, what about work, okay? Maybe this is work for you. Do you know the person in the QB over there? Have you ever had a conversation and said, hey, man, how you doing? Please understand as we do this, this is not going to be about witnessing. There is a huge difference between being a witness and witnessing. If you go witnessing, I'm going to slap you up the side of the head. I do not want you to go up to people that, are, that you don't know and go knock on their door and ask them if they die tonight, do you know if you would go to heaven? Please don't do that. This is about being a witness, and that's what this whole thing is about. It's about being salt. It's about being light. It's about finding out what we have in common with the people around us. You like to fish? Oh, so do I. You like to hunt? What do you hunt? Well, I, so do I. You like the bears? See you later. Whatever, okay? Do you find the commonality? All right, so we're using in this, in this book, we use the analogy of the home, and, and how that works is the very first thing we do is we connect. That's today. You connect. That is inviting people into the backyard. Backyard's safe, right? I mean, if, if you're weird, and if you invite them over and you're weird, you know, you serve vegan stuff or whatever, then they can always just leave because they're in the backyard, right? 
then serves when we invite them in and we uh, get them a glass of water if they want. We let them use the bathroom. We take care of their needs. We serve them. We allow them in the home. And then shares when we get to the point where at some point you're going to get the right to sit around the table and tell them about the hope that is within you, why you believe in Jesus. And then grow, the fourth week of the fourth point, is when we help to teach them how to grow and to cook for themselves because we can't just feed them forever. And then pray, obviously, wraps up the whole thing as we bring them before the Father. And the beautiful thing about the last week is one of the best hooks you could possibly have is when you go to your neighbor and you get to know him a little bit and you say, hey, you know what, I'm a Christian. How can I pray for you? Nobody will ever say no to that. That's what a witness is. That's how it is. The problem is, I mean, I, I said this, witnessing, it worked in its day, okay? Knocking on the door cold. But if you're not delivering my pizza, do not knock on my door. That's the world that we live in now. Somebody even made a, a sign for it. I love this. No soliciting. We're too broke. We already have Jesus. Don't need a vacuum. Seriously, unless you're selling Thin Mints, go away. I don't, is that your neighborhood? Because that's my neighborhood. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about putting ourselves purposefully in situations that might actually make us a little uncomfortable so that we can help bridge the gap between the sinners and the tax collectors and the, all the rest of us who don't deserve to be in heaven and Jesus. We, we make that bridge. We make that connection. My daughter, Rachel... Um, spent five months in Birmingham, England, doing a campus ministry. They, they started a campus ministry over there. While she was 20 years, 20 years old, she took one semester off junior year. She went to school down in Nashville. And they went and started this, this campus ministry in Birmingham, England. Well, the people that were smart enough to know enough about Birmingham, England, knew that the only way you start a campus ministry is by going to the pubs. Okay? I mean, that's where the kids are, especially in England. So we had to be okay with our daughter going into pubs. And not only that, but they also told us, and it is true if you've been there, you can't go into a pub and order a Diet Coke and establish a relationship with anybody who's there. So as a pastor and his wife, we had to wrestle through the decision of signing off, because Rachel wasn't a drinking age here, that it would be okay for her to have a pint of Guinness in a pub when she went on mission. Some of you are like, whatever, I'm from Milwaukee, I, you know, who cares? <laughs> Some of you are really uncomfortable right now, right? I, I get it. While she was there, she's a musician, she, she connected with two other non-Christian British musicians, and they started a little band, and they would be, they were the hit of all the pubs. They would have open mic night, and, and, and this, this group that they put together uh, would, would sing, and all the college kids would come, and that's how they started their campus ministry. While she was there, she met a guy named Ash. He was, a, he was getting his graduate degree in computer security systems, brilliant guy, but he was the typical British, you know, millennial. He'd, he'd grown up without any religion whatsoever, and he did not want to have anything to do with it. He had a great heart and a, and a searching, skeptical soul, but he didn't want to have anything to do with the people of Jesus, okay? He would have probably been the guy who would have said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, but he didn't want to have anything to do with those people, right? Until they met, until he met this group of young people who had come over to be on mission. Well, Rachel and Ash became friends, and 
over the course of time, they stayed together on the internet, started, kept talking, and she did with a lot of those people, and, and, and they were talking back and forth about things a long, a long time, and over the course of time, Ash started to kind of come around, and, and I want to let you in, if you've read the book already, it's in there, but I want to let you in on their conversation as he starts talking to her about this whole faith thing. He said, Rachel, when I met you, I could have and had in the past given you hours of justification for why I hated religion. I could have reeled off a list and put you as a religious fanatic in your place. And had you come at me and challenged why I hated religion, I would have done that. I would have told you why I pitied people who believed in God and Jesus and the resurrection. And I would have put you in your place. And no offense, but I probably would have come away looking pretty smug for all my excellent arguments and rational victories of logic. But you didn't. You just went ahead and showed me that it was all bull, naughty word. And that most of my facts and most of my opinions are really just wrapped up in justification. I told you he was smart. Well, the best analogy I can think of is kind of biblical, but I'm going to risk it. It's like I spent years building all these foundations to stand on. And people would come and they would say, hey, your foundations are looking pretty rubbish. And i just throw stuff at them and tell them to bugger off because they were also standing in the mud. And then you, Rachel, walked up, and instead of pointing fun at my rubbish foundations, you just walked over and stood on a rock. And I'm looking over, and I'm thinking, hang on, she's not saying it, but that rock required no building at all. And it looks a lot sturdier than my foundations. And you don't have to tell me, because I can see the dumb rock. That was the beginning of the conversation. No preaching, no argument, just standing on the rock. Rachel being a witness. Ash ended up being coming a Christ follower. Rachel went over and baptized him in a river in Wales on a trip several months later. Um, several months after that, he came over to visit. And um, eh, one thing led to another. And that bloke is now the father of my two grandsons. There's this picture. I know, they're, they're adorable. Charlie and George. Listen, a witness is not who you are. It's something you do. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. That's how it works. Think about this. My witness affected Rachel's eternal destiny. Rachel's witness affected Ash's eternal destiny. Ash's witness will affect my grandson's eternal destiny. And we don't know where it ends. But Rachel met Ash in a bar. That might not be okay for you if you're an alcoholic, if you struggle with that. I'm not saying that's the right place. I'm saying that's not the normal place. She met him by going, not by inviting him to come. And connecting with your Jerusalem means to go. You can only be a witness when you go. That's how it works. As a matter of fact, this is fascinating, but the Bible records 34 encounters between a person like that is named, a, a, a personal encounter between somebody and Jesus. There are 34 of them in your Bible. And only one of them takes place in a church setting. If that's who Jesus is, then that's who we're supposed to be. 
go into all the world takes on a little different connotation at that point, doesn't it? And you might ask yourself, well, how did it turn out for this tax collector guy? Well, he wrote this. Do you realize that? This is Matthew who wrote the gospel. He got it. I hope we will. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this challenge. It's funny because Ben and I were talking about it last night. He's kicking both of us in the backside. <laughs> it's my message, and I needed to hear it again because it's so easy for us to get sucked back into the world that we live in. So easy for us to get sucked back into our little groups and our little rabbit holes and forget what we're supposed to be about. And Lord, for a lot of us, it's going to mean being proactive. It's going to mean being able to go out into the world and find relationships. And Lord, we ask for protection, and I'm certainly not saying that we should go into places that are, that are bad and that we should get ourselves into temptation. We only know, and you only know what we can handle and what we can do. But I'm guessing that's not the point. I'm guessing that our neighbor is right there across the street, and we've never said, hey man, how you doing? Because that's what it was like for me when I first started into this. I'm guessing that there are coworkers around. We've just maybe they don't look like us. Maybe they maybe we don't think they'd be interested in a relationship. Maybe that's exactly the right person for us to go say, "Hey, man, how you doing?" Lord, guide us in this journey. And Lord, if there are people here who don't have you, will you help them to know that this is exactly the right place for them? Because River Glen Church gets this. They know what it's about, and they're welcome here. Lord, be with us. In your name we pray. Amen. We're going to have communion now. Um, we do communion every week at our church as well. I think it's kind of fun to think about churches unifying together. This is one of those moments where the body gets together and we, and we celebrate the fact that Jesus did die, that Jesus was merciful to me, a sinner. You're going to get trays come by, two cups, one inside the other one, just take them both out and hold them for a moment and, and, uh, and commune. Uh, we just want to invite you to do that with us now and picture people all around the world doing this and then imagine what it would be like if people around the world took this as our power and went out and became witnesses.